Once again, to Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake, lake sediments. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Seampont. Hey, how's it going? And so today, we're capping off our long-running series on the history of paleomnology. Yeah, our first multi-part series. This has actually been quite a bit of fun, uh, but all good things must come to an end. So today, we'll try and wrap it up. Absolutely. No more. Or, well, I guess there'll be lots more history elements going forward. But for the time being, this should be the last episode of our reconstructing the history of reconstructing the histories of lakes. Yep. And just we'll begin with a really, really quick uh, recap of where we left off. Um, So in episode one, we really looked at the building blocks of paleontology within science broader, looking for the foundational aspects and key figures that provided the shoulders that many paleomnologists stand on till this day. In episode two, we explored a little bit more looking for who would be the first paleomnologists, even if though they may not necessarily describe themselves that way. And then last time we um, looked into the period of time where paleomnology really came into its own and established itself as a serious subdiscipline with its role in the acid rain debates of the 1970s and 1980s. And uh, that's where we begin this time around, uh, looking at paleolimnology, I guess in its you know, adult years, looking at life beyond pH. Yeah, the most modern years, the most recent years anyway. And it's not to say that people don't still uh, assess pH changes and acidification and all those things with paleolimnology, but it has moved beyond this initial uh, environmental problem that it was tasked to try and solve, try and disentangle. Uh, and I think one of the, the best parts in my mind of the last episode was piecing together the fact that all of the different techniques had come together by the time we had this environmental problem of acidification. So we had the dating, we had the coring, we had the uh, biological indicators, we had the computing, and they all came together to address this one problem. And then, I mean, I don't know for sure how it uh, how it went down, but... Uh, it mustn't have taken very long before people realized, boy, this could be applied to a lot of other things. Absolutely. And so now we're looking at, I guess last time we were looking at 1970s, 1980s. Uh, the Journal of Paleomnology was founded in uh, 1988. And so moving forward into the 1990s, paleomnology had really established itself as a quantitative discipline. And it answered the big questions related to acid rain in terms of how the lakes acidified, when, on what spatial scale, how much, um, using diatoms. And as Josh just mentioned, you know, people still use those tools today doing pH reconstructions, but it's not necessarily the cutting edge of nature papers and, um, you know, huge multi-university grants crossing continental kind of fundamental questions of the science it's really become the backbone that a lot of the modern kind of frontiers have built upon to push even further to address other environmental questions so yes a lot of ph um, related research my own um, phd was really looking at the legacy of acid rain 
But, uh, you know, with the key questions about acidification answered, um, you know, there's lots of room for uh, research focuses and attention to shift elsewhere. And there are no shortage of questions that paleo could be applied to. Yeah. And some of those are things we've talked a little bit about in the past, whether they be uh, related to specific indicators or when we talked, kind of did our little arc on environmental problems and more broadly than paleolimnology. Uh, but I think it's worth a, a little bit of a reminder and review and synthesis uh, here, thinking about some of the other water quality and broader than water uh, environmental problems that paleolimnology was applied to starting in the 1990s and continuing right on to this day and will go well into the future. Yeah. And so these include, um, and I guess it wouldn't, a lot of, a lot of work started concurrently or earlier than some of the acid rain work, but came more to the fore in terms of, uh, you know, eutrophication issues, for example. So using diatoms to reconstruct, uh, total phosphorus rather than pH would be a big avenue of research. Um, a lot of work on the Great Lakes was dedicated to this. Yeah, uh, work by folks like Gene Stormer and Claire Shelsky and many, many others from all, many of the Great Lakes, but uh, a lot of research in Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, I think Lake Michigan as well. Um, I don't know so much about Lake Huron or Lake Superior. They tend to not have such long-term uh uh, fertilization issues. It tends to be more the, the populated lakes with lots of people around them uh, and doing things like total phosphorus reconstructions, but also using biogenic silica. So an estimate of diatoms um, from a chemical perspective, as opposed to a biological uh, microfossil perspective in order to track the changes in the, uh, in the landscape and how that was contributing an excess of nutrients to the aquatic ecosystem. So much to the point where uh, one of the really interesting findings out of all this work was that the lakes had become silica limited in some cases. Uh, and it was the diatoms fertilized by all of this, uh, this phosphorus coming in had used up all of the silica, which is always one of my favorite paleolimnology contributions, I think of all time. And then another major environmental problem was rearing its head at this time. Um, and of course, talking about global warming which uh, or I guess at the time was largely described as global warming. And then sometime around the 2000s, um, climate change became the catch-all um, uh, term for, because global warming is referring only to the temperature, but uh, concerns with um, environmental damage are more than just temperature focused and talking about changing weather, pa weather patterns and things. And obviously this was like, I mean, I remember doing a grade six or seven science project on the greenhouse effect in the late 1980s using books checked out of the public library. So it's kind of funny <laughs> when we think of like, you know, we're in 2020 and this is still a contentious, contentious science, issue. Yeah. yeah. It's like, um, someone wrote a whole book on it in like 19, if it was in your public library in like 1989 at school, it was written in 1982, probably oh, it wasn't yeah. a new book. It's, it's not, it was absolutely not cutting <laughs> science at all. Um, and, uh, talk, you know, so at the tender age of whatever you are in grade six, 12, I was able to access, you know, tomes that are accessible to a 12 year old on 
increasing carbon dioxide concentrations, increasing the temperature of the planet, thinking this is a horrific kind of uh, doomsday kind of nuclear winter level problem that the planet would totally solve before I was an adult. Shows what kids know, Adam. Yeah, I was, <laughs> apparently I was a dumbass. Uh, <laughs> You and a lot of other people in this world. Um, But it doesn't mean that people weren't turning their paleoluminological toolkit to those kind of questions that early and continue to do so. And and I think that's something we'll talk about kind of a little bit. uh, Well, it'll weave its way throughout this episode because that really is a modern question. And and really the link to climate change, I think that's kind of a, a good point is because you know, you can you can track temperature. We'll say this in a, in a in a minute. You can track temperature in some cases with lake sediments, but a lot of times we're tracking the environmental change, the climatic uh, impacts that that result in changes to to water bodies in the catchment. And also around this time, um, you're starting to see um, paleoluminological approaches tackle other things other than biological and chemical change. Um, talking about the emergence of limnogeology looking at various um, geochemistry and uh, mineralogy aspects of lake sediments in a different way, Um, and things like stable isotopes being used to derive signals from lake sediments. So really seeing a proliferation of the type of scientists that are using paleolimnologists. We're growing well beyond diatom nerds, statistics nerds, and radioisotope nerds, I guess. Uh, at this point, it's definitely broadening and the tendrils are kind of weaving their way in all kinds of university departments, really. Yeah, bringing, kind of going back a little bit to some of the things we talked about in the first episode, the things that are foundational to the science and maybe, I, I wouldn't say they were pushed aside by the biologists and the chemists, uh, but focus on the physical processes, the geologists, the geomorphology component of the the sediment environment and the things that you can infer about the broader uh, landscape from lakes as a way of them being sort of sentinels of all the changes that are occurring in the landscape. This is one of the really nice uses of stable isotopes to reconstruct all sorts of different things. Uh, and the sediments are a great archive because there's so many different things that we've talked about throughout this, you know, throughout the last 22 episodes, 21 episodes, uh, many of which preserve a stable isotope record that we can use to track a plethora of environmental uh, changes and, and really apply those to all sorts of different things. And then, again, I'm seeing a rapid um, rate of development of equipment being used. So I guess I think of... I think it's 1988 or 1989 that John Glue's paper on the um, on the core and the extruder uh, design that he um, developed uh, were published in JOPL, uh, and that's you know a go-to citation in a lot of um, the, st- the stuff that I work on. Um, but at the same time, in other aspects, so we're seeing deep drilling projects of like much deep bigger lakes um, being. Mm-hmm. Uh, drilled for longer sediment sequences from places like Lake Titicaca in, is it technically, is it in Brazil or is it in Peru? It's like kind of a. I don't think it's in Brazil, Peru, so, Argentina, it may, yeah. Bolivia, it may straddle a, a few borders. A few, I'm not few, sure. Okay. Um, 
But yeah, but South America. <laughs> it's in definitely yes, definitely in South America. Um, and on the Brazil side of the Andes, but I'm not sure exactly which country it is in. But anyway, um, looking for super long climate records. So again, you know, um, so I guess we're looking at, again, the climate weaving its way in all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but a change in focus in terms of big projects and the scale has changed. We're no longer looking at the last 200 years of uh, history of a lake. We're interested in lakes that have been around for thousands of years. Yeah, we talked about uh, uh, Dan Livingston and his piston coring, for which he's well known probably most broadly uh, in the paleo community. But the same kind of idea at the same time period, people working on the African rift lakes, uh, people working on Lake Titicaca and some of these lakes in locations that weren't glaciated. Uh, Lake Baikal in Siberia, uh, which has been worked on, uh, sediment records from that. It's the oldest sediments on the planet because it's the oldest lake on the planet. Uh, and it's just kind of a multinational team. Just as the Soviet Union was uh, coming to its end and there were opportunities to access locations that hadn't been, a lot of British researchers people like Anson Mackay uh, and others who have uh, had amazing careers publishing on that lake and the amazing amount of history from the sediments in that location and Africa and the rift lakes there give the same kind of stories. And that's a mixture of uh, biological proxies, but also sedimentological proxies, stable isotopes in order to like Del 18 uh, O in order to infer some of these long climate records. So really bringing together all of the things that we've been talking about and the long core climate records are real, very different part of the paleolimnological history from the acid rain uh, work, which was all very recent. Absolutely. In terms of the approaches you're taking, the times, not just the time scale, but when you ever go to a, um, like a Holocene level talk, it always blows my mind in some level, because it's not where I'm really focused on, but then you realize individual interval, intervals when you know, I'm working on a calcium decline story of the last 200 years and my intervals and my dating. It's all about, um, you know, a couple of years maybe per sediment slice. And then you realize that some of the deep sediment slices are dealing. One in interval is looking at, you know, 100 years plus. Oh, easily. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, when you go to those big lakes, you're, you're using uh, equipment and coring technologies that are derived from the marine record from ocean drilling projects that's the size of those massive lakes and uh the the sedimentation is so low in some of these hyper hyper oligotrophic lakes ultra oligotrophic yeah hyper eutrophic ultra oligotrophic uh, like baikal and the sediments are just so slowly deposited at those depths that uh yeah there's not much in those intervals you got to be very sparing with the use of your sediment have you ever done anything on a really big lake? No. That's no, no, so, so, so the largest. That's the one part of the like paleo field work that I have very little experience with. Okay. I, I the have biggest lakes zero. I think would be in uh, in southern Ontario, like in Muskoka, the bigger Muskoka lakes. Okay. Which are not that big lakes. No. They're not that great. No. Some of them are fairly deep. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want to do too many coring pulls from there, but... Uh, 
nothing that you need a ship with stabilizers uh, in order to maintain your location. Yeah, no, I'm like the vast majority of my coring has been done from small, um, small zodiacs, canoes. Yeah. Um, like maybe a, a couple of 20 footers, like size so about as like big as I've ever been. fishing boat. Yeah. 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 No, I would love to. I don't foresee any opportunity uh, at this juncture in, in my career, but uh, I would it would be a, a highlight for sure. So again, keeping on on the climate uh, front, I think of um, growth of paleo uh, into using things like coronaments to produce temperature uh, transfer functions. So instead of reconstructing the history of pH or TP, we're actually using the biological record to reconstruct mean July temperature going back through time. And that combined with a real explosion in what has been called, or sometimes referred to as frontier paleomology, looking for various canaries in the coal mines, largely often associated with climate research. But this is when we're talking about lots of work in the high Arctic and Antarctic regions and Alpine regions, as they're potentially much more sensitive to climate change effects than low altitude, low mid latitude regions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I guess it's probably a, a time when there were, you know, researchers going more broadly in from the universities, the idea of you know, limnology was studying lakes within a 30 minute drive of a university was sort of going away as well. People were exploring, uh, other locations and and took the methods with them and those were great places at the same time to test these questions about what climate uh, change and the responses might look like in a high alpine lake environment or in Antarctica maybe not Antarctica for university re- researchers that tends to be funded by government primarily uh, groups like the British Antarctic Survey have a great paleolimnology group uh, researchers. I'm not sure if they have whole groups associated with it, but certainly researchers uh, in order to explore those locations and, and bring back lakes, sediments, wherever there are lakes. As we alluded to in the last segment, um, another big change that would happen through the late 1990, uh, the 1990s and on would be a proliferation in both in terms of the regions where paleomology is being applied and the questions being asked, but also in terms of the indicators and methods that are being used to address those questions. Um, seeing a proliferation of things beyond the biological indicators. So we start to see studies using charcoal to track long-term changes in fire history, for example. Um, examining DNA preserved in sediments, using spectral methods to tell us more about the chemical characteristics of the sediments. Addition, additional biological proxies like testate amoeba. Um, and more and more multi-proxy analyses. And um, it's kind of interesting when you look at certain figures of the use of the term multi-proxy within the Journal of Paleoenology itself and how it rises through time. Um, But it's really doing this series kind of neat to note that the SWAP program is really one of the bigger original multi-proxy analyses. Oh, yeah, big Because they did so much stuff, but it didn't really describe itself as that. Um, and it got they were too early here. for it. Yeah, or because, I guess, uh, 
you know, it's just, we're studying everything. We don't really need a word for it. This is them. Sure. Yeah. And everything that can be studied will mm -hmm. be studied. Yeah. And so, uh, in the first are the big, uh, descriptive paper of swap, uh, better being remembered as a sentence cores from each of these sites was subjected to diatom, chrysophyte, cladocerin, coronamid, pollen, trace metal, sulfur, carbonaceous particle, magnetic mineral, and PAH analysis. Like that's Jeez. a long list of things to do on every single core. Man, that's a big PhD right there. <laughs> but I guess that, that's the thing, right? It, you, that is a mega project, SWAP and, and Perla, which didn't have anywhere near as many of those indicators. But uh, it, it's not being done by one person or one paper or even, you know, one series of papers by, by one person. It's done by multiple individual research teams different universities, different laboratories that have their expertise in all of those techniques. And it's amazing that those things could be brought to bear on one set of cores. I don't know how they decided how to use the sediment up or multi, I haven't read all the papers where they had multiple cores. Anyway, it's an amazing amount of research. Yeah. Amazing. But yeah. Yeah. Just but coordinating we, it is oh, uh, yeah. a crazy yeah, before, amount of work on its own. Before good database programs existed for analyze or for collating all those kind of data, that's an amazing amount of work to even core correlation and all the things that are required to do all of the things we, I don't even say we take for granted, are still hard now, uh, let alone 30 years ago. Um, but we have gotten to the point where now, as Adam said, multi-proxy is sort of the de rigueur for every, not every paper, but a lot of papers. So individual papers, individual projects will not be expected, but very commonly incorporate more than one environmental proxy. And often more than one environmental proxy that is not you know, found on the same set of microscope slides or carried out in the same analytical uh, workflow. And so it takes multiple different types of analyses, which is a lot of work. Uh, and, and I don't know, do you think that that's just sort of an inevitability that that was going to happen? Is it a, a function of analytical power? I, I'm not really sure what, what the drive behind that is. Uh, I think it's being able to say more definitively that to reduce some of the hand waviness of explaining, away, uh, explaining trends. If you've got two unrelated um, indicators within the sediments, whatever those indicators may be, and so on the one hand, yes, on slides, you can have uh, the same slide. You can have your chrysophytes and your diatoms. But um, here we're talking more about things like, you know, you're doing a TP reconstruction of diatoms, but you also want to have a pigments chlorophyllate reconstruction of some kind, whether sure. it's through uh, um, HPLC or spectral means to track the same. Are, are the big changes happening at the same time? And just by going from one to two, you exponentially improve how convincing your argument is. Yeah, and then that's if, true. And then the more you add, the more convincing the argument can become. But you know, biological variability can also uh, oh yeah, yeah throw some sure. curveballs your way. As I well. thought it was a, a great idea when I started my PhD or upgraded my PhD from my master's that this one paper would have 16 cores in it. And that was a terrible idea. You just add way more variation when you add more and more sediment records and more and more things, more to explain. So, boy, I should have stopped at six. Now, um, I remember you trying to show me that stuff early on. I was like, <laughs> I need to summarize 16 late trends in one figure. What do you suggest? And it's like, I have no idea. Have fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, but, but it is it is a trend, no doubt. Um, maybe not more cores, but more proxies. Um, and and whether that uh, continues, uh, whether people go back to more process based stuff on a, a smaller scale, I think that that's something to be seen in the future. But it is a part of the history of paleolinology for sure. Absolutely. And I guess one thing when you said of like why that trend occurred. I think a big reason would be related to the standardization of methods. Uh, so, so here we're largely pointing the finger at the uh, deeper book series or developments in paleoenvironmental research, especially the early volumes of it that were like, you know, the definitive guides of um, how to do a lot of these analyses. So I think of like this in the um, zoological indicator volume. It's like that number four. Yeah. Yeah. You know, clodocerins, chronomids. And so having those kind of textbook level resources, you know, definitely allow individual labs, individual specialists to add another proxy a, l- a little bit easier than it would have been 20 years or much easier than it would have been 20 years prior. And just proliferation of knowledge and expertise and institutional memory and things like that all really come to bear. Yeah, that, that's something that. I hadn't really thought about as much, uh, it's sort of, I don't know, I take, I take for granted that they exist in some ways. And if you look at the uh, amount of material that goes, that is in those books, but more so the breadth of the author list in those books, it really is uh, an, a, a fairly impressive collection that's been brought together. The number of different researchers are from all across the paleolimnological study uh, disciplines, researchers across, you know, in, in England, in, in Scandinavia, in the States and Canada, there's a huge number of different authors, all of them experts in their individual fields, all brought together into these, the, the original ones are four in the original pack that came out all at the first time, at the same time in 2001, 2001. That sounds right. That sounds right. And, uh, and then the fifth book, which came out much later than some of the others, is a statistic one that took a little bit longer to bring to uh, uh, bring to fruition. I think it came out in 2015 or something in that range. Um, either way, the five of those together, if you look at the huge uh, names in the paleolimnology, like that would be a list of all the people who have contributed a great deal to different paleo disciplines. And, and it's, you know, you could easily have had a single person do an okay job of describing all of those different things. But just looking at the, the wide range of experts, I think is quite an impressive feat. Yeah. And I think um, there's really a lot to be said for having a resource all in like a definitive quote unquote Bible for whatever it is you're looking at. Because I, even when I started my PhD, there wasn't a definitive um, identification guide for clodocerin um, subfossils. And so when I rolled into the lab and I was asking and I'm looking, you know, so where's the equivalent of the diatom books, the, you know, for IDing these. And then, um, the students that were working on Glossen's lab, when I got there, like, nice try, buddy. Anyway, here <laughs> yeah. is the paper stack of where, you know, there's a photo for this species in this paper and a photo for this species in this paper and a photo of this species in this paper. And, uh, so when the first couple of guides started showing up and now like about a couple of different ones, 
papers came out around the same time. And I was like, where was this a year ago? Mm -hmm. Sort of made my life so much easier. And just that standardization of, um, of methods and descriptions all in one place. Um, I really appreciate how, how, how much of a game changer those can be at times. Yeah. I go back to those deeper chapters all the time and they're very technical, which I think is, uh, makes them a challenge for new students coming in to access them. Uh, but they're a great resource when you want to go back and reread them or read just a small section of one chapter uh, to give you the real details uh, on that topic. And, and they seem really up to date in a lot of cases. Like I don't feel like the, you know, obviously the literature is a little bit out of date in applications, but from a methods, it was really the, the right time to standardize all of those things. Yeah. And, and they've continued, right? I, I mean, was just going to bring that yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, like, sorry, we're well sorry, past sorry. volume five now. I, I guess I'm not paying a huge amount of attention to the most recent releases. Um, and I don't remember. I was shocked to see that they're now at volume 20, which is uh, um, Esther, oh, like too mealy mouth here. Estherine. Yeah. Uh, studies. Yeah. Yeah, they don't even, they're not, it's paleo-environmental. You know, there's one on tree rings and uh, I'm not sure if there's an ice record, speleotherms, like there's all sorts of beyond lake sediments, uh, even though the first one's focused primarily on lakes. Though method-wise, a lot of things applied maybe a little beyond the lake environments. But yeah, they, they really have uh, blossomed into a whole bunch of different topics with, you know, guest editors who, I think John still edits the series, Um but who edit the individual volumes who are experts in those fields. Yeah. And a big geographic spread, I guess. That was something you mentioned earlier of like paleontology, like, you know, in the acid rain debates, it was like Europe and North America were like the two focal points. And now even in the deeper series, it's like there's one dedicated to South American paleontology. Um, and there's one dedicated to uh, paleontology in China and then other regions of Asia. Um, it's uh yeah, it's like, boom. Exploded. And t- tying into the methods in some ways is as more and more analyses were performed using these standardized methods due to the deeper books, and then able to enter an era of meta-analyses where you can start pooling bigger and bigger and bigger data sets together or multiple big data sets together to try and make really expansive continental scale analyses in some cases mm-hmm. much more than my comment about my 16 sediment cores but when you bring them together from different locations you can say things a little bit more broadly about the environmental questions that are contained within uh within those records or environmental answers to questions that are contained in the records uh and there are definitely a, a, a number of those that have uh come together over the last 15 years or so uh, that use all of these records. As more people publish paleo records, it was much more possible to put them together. Yeah. And, you know, the data, even after analysis is done, the data can uh, live on and you can, you know, not you can, you will, um, depending on your data, eventually have someone knocking on your door saying, you know, could I use that data for this bigger analysis that I'm trying to pull together? And, uh, and when it happens, it's kind of cool. And uh, yeah, there's, um, and this ties back into the climate theme that we've referred to a couple times, but really that's how we're getting big global 
level climate driven regime shifts in biological communities of various regions of the world, if not on a global scale. Yeah, exactly. Because no one person is going to be able to integrate all of those records in their own research. It takes multiple individuals doing it for many, many years, and then someone has to come around and, and synthesize it and, and be able to contribute the synthesis, which is another, you know, on top of all the great work that went into it. And that's how paleo ends up in things like the IPCC reports as a way of uh, identifying some of the, the impacts associated with climate change and other environmental problems going forward. And you, you really never know because those records just, uh, you may not have identified that environmental problem and the, the potential for future reanalysis is uh, not endless, but there are a lot of potential uh, opportunities there. Yeah. And there, so I'm just riffing on that idea. And there's a lot of gold stowed away in cold rooms around the world. Um, Huge. Yeah. I'm thinking in particular of um, the disappearing Arctic ponds um, that were visited on, is it Ellesmere Island? Yeah, that uh, Pearl did. Um, I was not involved in any of these analyses, but basically, uh, you know, due to climate warming, those ponds have disappeared. They've dried up. Yet there are multiple cores of sediments from multiple time periods sitting in the Pearl Cold Room that could be analyzed in the future as new environmental proxies and um, indicators are identified and questions that, you know, you're able to, there's sediment available from lakes that no longer exist that can be analyzed going forward into the future, which is kind of a even if the sediment doesn't exist, there's still the knowledge about what that system looked like. There was a, a one of the lakes that I did for my worked on for my PhD, finished working in the Delta and then went and did postdoc stuff further to the south in the Northwest Territory. So it had been a few years since I went to the Delta and then I went up with some students and was flying over and I'm like, holy crap, that lake drained. It's gone. Isn't, the lake isn't there anymore. Uh, it's a little puddle now, so you could go and take a, a you know a sediment core of the little pond that now it was this fairly good sized lake, but it's going to be very different. So you can compare all of the changes, and just the the final word is that whatever that um, surface was the year you took that first core, you know you can now change look at all of the changes that have occurred since then because you have a, a really good time marker for those changes uh, or those conditions when the core was originally taken and then all of that new sediment so it's a a good kind of hard chronostratigraphic marker you can use yeah and it's cool seeing the um analyses that are comparing multiple cores from the same lake taking at the same the same time and what was it there's one i was looking at recently looking at various means of reconstructing chlorophyll A mm -hmm. and they were using like six or seven different cores from the same lake where oh, yeah. they had absolute certainty on when the top sample of each of these cores was. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a, you know, n new wrinkle to it all. I guess. Yeah. There's, there's no error on the, the dating when it was the day you took that core. That was what the sediment was like that day. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a good kind of place to wrap up this history 
uh, and and think about kind of I don't know where where paleo goes. What what will be what will what will it be on episode? Uh, I don't know how many episodes we'll have to be before we revisit the history of paleolimnology on the podcast. But uh, and there's enough new history, like episode <laughs> thousand. <Yeah>. Good, good. <laughs> Fifty years at this rate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess we've got room to pontificate a little bit on what the next big things uh, might be. Um, and that's a little bit about my pay grade, I guess. I'm just a grunt in the pale, uh, tiny cog in the paleolimnology machine. But uh, I th- personally think, you know, big data is basically one of the frontiers that I see lots of people kind of working on or grappling with and going, yeah, no, there's lots of cool stuff that can be done there for bigger analyses, more complex statistical analyses, you know, less. Mega, mega, mega. Kind mega, of mega, mega, and, and things like network effects of not just looking at, you know, this is what the clodosterans did and this is what the diatoms did and this is what the chronomans did while um, your temperature reconstruction is doing whatever and then looking at how all those communities may have influenced themselves mm-hmm. and it's some mind-bending statistics involved. Really that, integrative statistics. Yeah. yeah, that I don't really have a good handle on, but I think that is going to be a bigger and bigger thing going forward. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, make, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's uh, the case in other disciplines in ecology and, and other fields, so it doesn't surprise that it would, would come to the paleo literature because there are so many records and so data intense as we talked about in the last episode. Uh, another one, you know, we continue to push the boundaries of what we can do with environmental DNA to the point of what seems like almost, uh, uh, you know, magic in some cases, the, the way in which you can recover, uh, usable DNA fragments from the sediment, uh, going back very, very far in time. Uh, and, and we'll only get better at that as, as we get better environment with environmental DNA broadly. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's one thing where the, um, I guess the data like just requires time to cook in some level, like as the libraries that you check your, your DNA sample get better and better and better. Like the more people that do this work, just the better it will become by default almost. I know it's not default. There's a lot of work involved, but just the accumulation of information needs to snowball, I guess, to be able to, and then you have all the um, technique driven Developments and better isolating the the um, the DNA strands and yeah, absolutely. As you improving get to the detection of, of rare things and stuff. Yeah, when you get to some of the sort of the more metagenomics kind of approaches, where you're just putting it in the shotgun kind of pipeline to just see what is there. You're not using targeted primers for specific species. You're just this is all of the not even DNA, the fragments of DNA that are anywhere in this sample and trying and to piece that together like yeah piece that together into the the based on the library of what we know is found anywhere in sediments ever uh and then pulling out this you know amazing record of not just not just the species that existed there 
but the functional like expression of genes and whether they may have been like upregulated and all those kind of things to see what they were doing, not just whether they were present is a huge where place where we can take sort of broader genomics and metabolomics and proteomics and all those omixes and put them into a paleolimnological perspective. Paleolimnologics? Uh, so one, one of the awards that won, or one of the papers that won the Peters Award, which is the SCL, um, uh, SCL uh, Best Student Paper Award, uh, is a student of Jules Blay who worked on sedimentonomics, is, was their term for it. <laughs> sedimentomics? I'm not sure what it is. Um, and they it's weren't using right DNA as much. They were using other markers and sort of a, a mass spectrometry kind of perspective, but that kind of, uh, that kind of pipeline or process, yeah. So sedimentomics uh, for all sorts of things. They were interested in biomarkers, but the process is, is exactly the same. Cool means. Mm-hmm. I'll send you the link to that, and it can go in the show notes. The uh, the paper by Madison, which is a great paper. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. And, no, it's and the actually, and uh, just uh, the thing, uh, the other winner of the award because it was shared by two students was uh, a Pearl alum. Are they still student? No, he's, no, still, he's still student. Yes, yeah. Pearl so, student. Still cracking away. Um, Matt yeah. uh, Duda. Duda is that what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Duda. For he may or may work. not actually hear this. Maybe, yeah. Good work. Both of them, both of them have to do with uh, paleolimnology this year. So in all yeah. limnology research in Canada, those are the best student papers of this year. And there is a, a good history of, of uh, paleo papers doing well in that award, including Adam winning it once. <laughs> many, many, many moons ago. All right. And then anything else? What else? Uh, what else do we see in the definitive history? Um, I guess the last one would just really be... And it's already underway, but just, again, another snowball effect, contain and grow in terms of the huge amount of research now taking place outside of the two, I guess, historical focal points. Um, so all the work in China, South America, Asia, Africa, or I guess um, filling in the blanks in many ways in terms of what the limnological and paleolimnological history of those regions are and bringing, catching them up with the more well-studied regions that were kind of the, you know, the starting places, I guess, of paleo writ large. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, I would say half the papers I get asked to, to review are specific to permafrost research in the Tibetan plateau or in Northern China, Southern Mongolia, kind of at the, the interface with Siberia and just the huge amount of research going on in those locations. Um, there's just so much work being done and not in the, the classical locations. And that is just the word I was looking for earlier. Just so, so broadly expanding because those systems are different. So we're learning a lot of things about the nuance of environmental response, whatever that environmental change might be across all the different kinds of systems. And that'll just feed into what you said in your first, the first point in the big data and trying to tease apart the nuance in those different uh, responses. So it's a, it's a very exciting time to be a paleolimnologist and to be a, a rabid follower of the paleolimnological literature out there. 
Oh, yeah, it's so big there. I guess, um, you know, compared to even the beginning of the time period covered by this show, like the pond is a lot bigger and the fish are a lot smaller. Yep. Yeah, it's hard to keep up. You know, it's, it's, it is a challenge to keep up on all the things that are going on research-wise in terms of the literature. Uh, and that's something we could have a, maybe a future episode we could think about and the, just the how to deal with that massive amount of new papers that are published every week on, yeah. a, on a topic. I, maybe we'll crowdsource some solutions because yeah, I don't, I don't have one. answer that. There isn't <laughs> one. There isn't, you know, like it's just specialization. I think we're... Um, uh, well beyond the, the era where you could have a paleo polymath. What, what what's the word? Where there's been a couple like the Renaissance men where they they had they described as having universal knowledge, mm, whatever the mm-hmm. term was. I forget I forget what the actual term is, but basically they knew everything. Like that idea of uh, even being able to know everything that was known by modern science at that point uh, doesn't make any sense to me, but. Um, even just within paleo, we're well beyond universal knowledge oh, yeah, and paleo exactly. being attainable by one one individual. And uh, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So there we are. We did it. A definitive history. The definitive history of paleonology that is available anywhere on the planet in podcast form. That's right. As far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> Big asterisk next to as far as we know. If yeah. you do, however, know... Of a, of another definitive history, or even even parts that that would be nice to fill in, definitely let us know because we would we would easily make an addendum to this. Now I'm sure there are some huge huge gaps, oh, glaring, highly offensive ones. to some people. Yeah, and we apologize um, for that. But this is not our full time job, so research on these sort of things can only <laughs> take so much of our time, <laughs> particularly given a pandemic and little kids yeah. and all that stuff yeah. to deal we with. We do this for fun on things that we're interested in. Um, and uh, I was going to say, yeah. as a as a um, segue to the fact that we're, we're there will actually be a I don't know if it's really part of the series of fifth episode, but an an epilogue to this that we could have fact checked all of it with uh, with one John Small. But we based it off of his notes, so I think we probably wouldn't find all that different of a history from him. But yeah, no, I, I think you know what I'm. I'm pretty primed now for sitting down and talking with him about a lot of this stuff. Um, in know, one episode, his, in we one can't episode. get four episodes. We can do four episodes. But um, you know, I think it's one thing to. Um, uh, you know, read it at the textbook level. I've always been interested in like the the story behind the science on some level, and so just things like you know the quest for a good radio isotope, for example. Like when you read the papers now, it seems blindingly obvious in hindsight that lead two hundred and ten was like the perfect one for studying acid rain. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, to talk to someone that was there at the time. Um, you know, were there other candidates? Was it as obvious, you know, or was it like the Holy Grail had been found after so many, you know, false starts yeah. that just don't make their way into the literature? Um, you know, st- stuff like that. I think it'd be really interesting to sit down and just chat with him. Yeah, and he, I mean, he may not know, but uh, oh. if anyone does, I think uh, that'd be a good person to start by asking, oh, particularly if you have access to him. All right. So uh, there we go. But on our actual rambling. 
Uh, we're all done for now on this arc. And as we said, an ep epilogue with John. And then after that, I have no idea what we're going to do next. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, we don't get that many correspondents. Uh, but if you hear this episode and you have any ideas for where we could go next, uh, are you interested in a deeper dive into some more methods? Because uh, we certainly didn't finish all of those in the beginning part of the series. Um, <sighs> barely scratched yeah, the surface. Yeah, barely scratched the surface there. Uh, did you like other sections, more interviews, any suggestions for people to, to try and bring on? We are always happy to hear all of those. Uh, and as Adam said, we really have no plan for what we're going to do after the interview with JPS. So uh, we'll, figure something. we'll figure something out. But if you have an idea, we would happily entertain it. And if you'd like to reach us to let us know of any such suggestions, uh, you can reach us at Twitter, which is Core Ideas Paleo, P-A-L-E-O. And you can also send us emails at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can find show notes to accompany almost all the episodes. I'm a couple episodes behind uh, at our website at coreideas.ajazeroski.ca, but basically just find the link off our Twitter bio and uh, yep, until next it. time, thank you for listening. And we hope, uh, hope you've enjoyed this history of paleomology in four parts. We certainly have take care out there and we'll right. see you next time. See ya.